Good morning and welcome everyone to church. It's great to see everybody this morning. Let's see if my slides are up here. Okay. This is, I recognize, a very intense title for a slide on a Sunday morning. A cause worth dying for. You think about Jesus. Jesus had a cause worth dying for. And this morning, as we dig into the character of Jesus, I want to help us realize that a life worth living requires a cause worth dying for. We just came out of uh, uh, Black History Month as we're going into March now. But in honor of Black History Month, uh, remember Martin Luther King. In, in 1966, he was interviewed at a university in Illinois. And when being asked about why does he participate in nonviolent protest, he responds in this interview with the following. He says, nobody with any sense loves to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it to a, from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. Even if he tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so eternally true, some things so precious, that they are worth dying for. And if a man, if a woman, has not discovered something that he or she will die for, in a sense, they are not fit to live. Martin Luther King and many others gave their lives for a cause that transcended themselves, for a cause that changed the history of our country, that also changed, it made a huge shift in, the, in the, the global impact of the world. That was a cause worth dying for. And like Martin Luther King, like many others who have gone before us and have given their lives for a cause greater than themselves, we together this morning participate in an opportunity to give our lives, not simply for the temporal, but for the eternal. And that's what Jesus did. His impact was beyond 20, 30, 60, 100, 200,000. His, his impact was for generations and for eternity to come. And so with the passion and the gifts that God has given us, we get to participate with Christ and live for a cause worth dying for. We're going to turn our Bibles over to Philippians chapter 2. Please join me there. That's where we're going to stay for most of our time. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to kind of jump around in this scripture. I think this is one of my favorite, my most, the most uncomfortable verse in the Bible for me. And it's actually a verse that many uh, theologians and historians believed that the early church would recite to one another as a creed. And so early in their homes, over dinner, while walking along, some even believe that this in Philippians 2 may have been a hymn that the early church long before Philippians 2 was written would sing to one another. And so it makes us think when we think about as we follow Jesus and we hope to restore biblical Christianity in our lives and the lives of those around us, we can't simply do Christianity or do the things that Jesus did. We have to think the way that Jesus thought. We have to think the way that our brothers and sisters from generations ago thought if we hope to live lives similar to them. And so let's 
read here in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5 and work our way through. In verse 5, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, not the same do set, the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is where we enter into the hymn. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that in the, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. And so Paul gets up here and he recites the creed, recites the hymn to the church, and this was something that they would have been very familiar with. And he says, essentially, in essence, this is our example. Jesus, with the mindset of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He took, instead of taking the nature of God, the creator of the universe, he took the likeness of dirt, becoming like humans. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death on the cross. Again, scholars, when they read this verse, they realize that this is there's too much to say in this verse with the small time frame that I have. But one insight that I found interesting was that they believe that this may have been a chiasm. Are you familiar with what chiasms are? For those of you who do not know, maybe some of you are, are, are fans of the Bama podcast. This is sort of his idea. Well, one of his ideas. But um, the, the idea of a chiasm is that with it's a literature device, a literary device, that as the, the words go along, it narrows to a specific point, and then it comes out the other side, uh, having highlighted a specific point. And so in contrast to the verses above, to the verse below, the verse above, the verse below, it finally comes to a crescendo at a specific moment. And we believe that that moment, the moment that Paul was highlighting, the moment that the early uh, church fathers were highlighting was being obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so as we follow Jesus and live lives to walk in step with him, the emphasis is always on the fact that no matter what was going on, no matter the cost, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for you. And when you think about the fact that Jesus was willing to go all the way unto death, you were the cause that he was worth dying for. He looked at you and said, I'm willing to go there for you. And so when we consider Jesus and his example, we have to be careful to check some of our, our personal, we not even careful to, we are inspired to check our personal personal entitlements at the door. Jesus was God. He was in very nature God, but he did not use his, his presence or his given power 
he relieved himself of certain entitlements. And in our lives, we look at that and go, some of the entitlements that I could feel, or maybe you have said about yourself, I'm too old for this. I'm too young for this. My job is too busy. I have too much going on. I don't know. I'm not as talented as X, Y, and Z. Therefore, here, there. Jesus' example, he has every right to enable his entitlement, but he lowers his entitlement for the cost of you and invites us to do the same for one another. We think about the different responsibilities that Jesus had, but even there, Jesus, in the very end, becomes obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. And so when we look at this story, not this story, but we look at this scripture, it calls and challenges each of us to evaluate what am I not willing to do for others? When we look and lock eyes with what Jesus was willing to do for us, it inspires us and actually helps alleviate some of those examples that are some of those excuses that can keep us from truly following him the way he invites us to. You guys with me? All right, that's good to know. And so here's my question, because obviously this is a great verse. This is a verse that we've heard many times. But the question I need to ask myself is how on earth do I live this out? Let me hear you say how. Beautiful. Oh, that was like in the key of D. I love it. Here's the question. How? How do we live a life like Jesus with this same mindset, sacrificing our life for one another and for others? Let me just make a quick note. I do not expect anyone in this room to physically become a martyr for Jesus. If that is necessary, if there's a case where that happens, amen. That, that is incredible. But when we realize that the physical death that we're called to live for Jesus, that may never be cashed out on. But we do have a daily death that we can live for him. I think Jesus was able to give his life on the cross the biggest death possible because he lived a life of daily death to himself. And so when we live lives of daily death, when the big call comes, whether that be martyrdom, which I don't think, again, that'll happen, good morning, or that means something even different in a different way, in a different size in our life, a daily death to self prepares us for the big things that come in our lives. And so Philippians chapter two, now we're gonna go backwards to understand the context, what was Paul saying that helps enable us to live a life like Philippians chapter two, verses six, six through 11. So if you go back to verse one, he starts off by saying, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness, any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. So we see the big call, the crescendo, the challenge, but right before that, he starts off by saying, do you have any encouragement? Do you have any partnership or ways that God has been working in your life? Do you have any compassion or mercy that God has shown you? And what's the answer? The answer is absolutely yes. 
It's always yes. These are ironic questions that Paul is asking. He's asking, are rocks hard? Is fire hot? Is water wet? Yes. It's such an obvious question. And in reality, of course, of course, we have comfort from God and God working in our spirit. There are so many things that God is doing in our lives, but it's so easy for us to forget what he might be doing, to get focused on the problems and the issues that coo and call so loudly in our lives. But Paul starts off by saying, remember, do you have any? Of course you do. And so with a shift back in perspective, that's what enables us to suffer. That's what enables us to endure hardship. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning, and I love the communion message that was shared, and I love that we do this each week. This morning, are you captivated by God's love for you? Are you blown away by how much God loves you? Are you in awe that he loves you and has chosen you? You know, being around the church, as Phil said, for a very, very, very long time, not quite as long as the marriage of the Servianos there, but being around the church for a long time, it's easy to lose sight and to lose sensitivity of how amazing God's grace is. It's easy for what once was overwhelming, bringing me to tears, to be something where I have a hard time focusing during communion. Something that once ushered my life to become not a responsibility to follow Jesus, but a response to follow Jesus. If we're not careful, we can lose sight of those things. But Paul makes the point, and this is why he makes the point. He starts off by saying, do you see how much God has done for you? Do you have any comfort, any compassion, any mercy? The answer is yes. And so when we focus back and pray and beg and wrestle with God to have hearts that are sensitive to his goodness for us, it results in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It results in what follows. You know, this is a common theme in Paul's passages and Paul's challenges to the church. He would first remind them of just how overwhelming God's grace is for them, how capturing and deserving his grace is, God's grace is for the church. And shortly after making those points, it results in some of the most challenging verses on discipleship that Paul has ever written. And it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to look at the challenging call of discipleship, but lose the context that Paul gives it in. Go with me on these verses here. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, that second part, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Essentially, put your body on the altar, and then when you come up out of the altar, your body, your old self lays down, and now Jesus has your hands and your feet. That is a challenging call to discipleship, isn't it? 
But he says, in view of God's mercy, with eyes locked on how God has forgiven you and loved you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We see it again in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The call at the end there is that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Man, is that hard. But it starts with Christ's love compels us. It drives us. It forces us forward. And lastly, my favorite verse in the Bible, Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all mankind. It, a.k.a. the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright, godly, and self-controlled lives. So Paul, again, makes the point. Saying no to sin, living upright, godly, and self-controlled lives starts with the grace of God being your teacher. And as I sat, we used to call the different hotels in New Jersey uh, based on their, when we were growing up in the West for our Sunday services, we used to call it based on what it looked like. Embassy Suites was always the jungle. The Sheraton was always the castle. The Hilton was always that other one. And then the Marriott was the one across the street from the other one. And that was in that space where I learned and grew in my relationship with God. I remember uh, studying the Bible, and I was sitting in the car with young Ross Lippincott, and he had a, a ratchet, scary old van. And we're sitting in the car, and he was notorious for not being the best driver. And we're sitting in the front seat. We kicked all the teens out. They went inside the Burger King, and we're sitting down studying the Bible. And Ross sits down, looks at the scriptures, with me and goes, Matt, according to this verse, are you in the light or are you in the dark? I'm like, I'm in the light. Yes. He goes, all right, let's read the scripture again. And so I read again. For the first time in my life, I really came to grips with just calling myself a Christian was not enough if Jesus was not my Lord. And I sat there and I remember we were going to drive home with Ross driving in his minivan and it was raining and I was like, I am going to die. And so with John Ashenbrenner and Anthony Taguchi and many others, they say the Bible, many of you study the Bible with me, poured your life into me. In October 3rd, 2010, I was baptized into Jesus. And it's been 12 and a half years since. Although I am so grateful for God saving me, what drew me to make Jesus Lord was out of a deep fear of going to hell. I knew that I was in the darkness and that I didn't want to die there. So what do I need to do to get right? In the first two, three years of my following Jesus, my mentality remained the same. What must I do? What is enough? What is the bare minimum so that I do not go to hell? And I might have thought that way or said that all the time, but it definitely was a fear-based Christianity. And Mark Persing, young Mark Persing, uh, at the influence of old Mark Persing, older Mark Persing, um, Mark Persing took a semester off of college when we were at William Patterson together. And I remember watching when Mark, for the first time, was transformed by the grace of God when his relationship with God was no longer from a place 
of fear and responsibility, but instead out of overwhelming amazement at God's love for him. And from there, I started reading books. I started reading Being Strong in the Grace. That's one of the books I recommend. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I started reading the epistles from the perspective of grace. And slowly but surely, God changed my heart to recognize that I should never think about it from what is the minimum that I get to do for him, but instead of what else can I do for him? You want me to go anywhere? You want me to do anything? I will give up everything for you, God, because of what you've given up for me. And when we make that shift, our response and the fruit that comes is beautiful, it is challenging, but it is so rewarding and so freeing. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says that, um, I'm just going to paraphrase, I haven't it down, but you know the scripture, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so there's a part of it. Fear often drives the beginning and it drives wisdom. But then you jump over to 1 John 4, 18, and it says, perfect love drives out fear. And so fear may be the thing that gets us started, but love is what drives us to maturity. Love is what brings you to maturity. And so I pray and we pray together that we may be this morning, this week, in awe of God's great grace and love for us. And I don't blame you if you're having a hard time with it, because I did too. And I do as well still, but we have to fight to get the right things in the right place if we are going to expect the right results from us. Philippians chapter two, verses three through four, we're to come in for a landing with this verse. In Philippians chapter two, let me just pop this off. Philippians chapter two, verses three through four, Paul then goes on to say after a super encouraging verse, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. All right, let's pack it up. Let's put a bow on it. We're done. This scripture is so hard. Amen. Do nothing. Do not one thing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I mean, some things, right? Nothing. Do nothing as selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, our call is to value others above ourselves, looking to their interests before our own. You know, I think in this verse, this sums up Christianity in a very powerful way. If this becomes the standard and the guiding post for our life, I believe with all my heart that we will be doing what Jesus calls us to do. We value others above ourselves. If we do nothing for our own glory and our own vain conceit, if we're not consumed with selfish ambition, but we filter our decisions through how is this going to affect my relationship with God and how is this going to affect the people important around me, I think we're doing discipleship. 61 times in the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, the Bible teaches us that there are 61 one another passages. You know, I think a little bit of uh, here they are right here. 
I highlighted a few. This is such a foreign concept for us. I like to think about these as Area 61. This is sort of an alien teaching for us, you know, Area 51. This is Area 61 because this is bizarre in our modern culture, especially in our Western American culture. Be devoted to one another, accept one another, serve one another, be patient with one another, consider others better than yourselves, comfort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, stop passing judgment on one another, and then many more to come. Wow, that's a good verse, right? Or that's, those are some good verses. But that is a challenging verse. We know John, John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so this is the invitation that Jesus and the, and the apostles give us as we follow him. He goes, live a life of one another living where you value others above yourselves and you consider the needs of those around you, whether in church or in your community or in your home or in your work, embody that spirit. And so again, I ask the question, how? There's too many on here to go through line by line. And so instead of talking about what we ought to do, again, I want to talk about what it takes to live a life that resembles this. In Luke 14, we're familiar with this verse in Luke 14, verses 25, uh, 25 on. But Jesus has large crowds that are following him. And turning to them, he says something. Just kidding. <laughs> in Luke 14, verse 25, large crowds are traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We know for all the kids in the room who's having a hard time with their parents, this is not telling you, this is not a stamp to say it's okay to hate mom and dad, all right? But instead, what Jesus is saying to the people, he says to them, your love for me must be so great that when compared to the things that you love most on this earth, it looks like hatred. That's how much you need to love me. But I don't think Jesus says this because, well, if you guys do not love me more than anything and everyone else, go home, you can't follow me. I don't see that as the spirit of Jesus. But instead, I see Jesus making this statement as just a truth. He goes, if, you, if your love for me is not so great that it doesn't compare to anything else, this is going to be very hard for you. You can't do it. You can try, but you will not last. And so as we're thinking about our relationship with God, we are again called into question. Am I in love with God? more than anything or anyone else. Otherwise, we won't be able to keep up. Otherwise, this will be too much for us, and we won't be able to make it for the long haul. You know, I think uh, how often, or rather what you consume daily, reveals what you expect from yourself daily. Think about that. You know, Michael Phelps, who we know is, is an animal, unlike anybody else, 27 gold medals, absolute uh, monster in the pool. Michael Phelps, when being interviewed by NBC Sports, 
on his 8,000 to 10,000 calorie diet. NBC Sports quotes him by saying, or says of him that he eats like a family of four. That was how much he consumed daily. When we follow Jesus and we make the decision to make him Lord of our life and to make him our king and our, our master, um, we have to stop. I think the mic just got a little more hot. Can you turn it down a little bit? We have to stop and think about, man, what is it that's fueling us? If we expect to be a good churchgoer that attends church on Sundays and most midweeks, the reality is we don't need that much to fuel us. But if we go, my standard is I want to get the gold medal in Jesus. I want to walk like him and talk like him and think like him and serve like him and be the father that is like him and be the son or the daughter that's like him. I want to do that. If we expect that of ourselves, it changes what we consume in order to become that. Brothers and sisters, let it be said about us that spiritually, we eat like a family of four. That we just want God's word. We're reading the Bible. We're digging into it. We have a girl on our campus ministry named Faith Bender. That's a really epic name. But she, this semester, decided that she wanted to read the Bible in, I believe, 90 days. And so she's reading 16 chapters of the Bible every day. And it's amazing watching her be transformed in front of our eyes. She is different today than who she was in January. I think that just goes to show that in whatever we are capable of doing, let us fight to be closer to God. Let us fight to have prayer lives that are vibrant, that are honoring, that strive, that declare that we need him. Coming in for a close here. Just want to reiterate that a life worth living requires a cause worth dying for. Martin Luther King and the many others that have gone before us lived causes worth dying for. But guys, this call that we have in following Jesus is one that is eternal, is one that can change the trajectory of someone's life, their generations to follow, generations that follow their generations, our culture, our society, and ultimately their eternity. And so if you're looking for something to give your life to, this is it. I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I want to know him and love him and live like him. I want to live the one another way that says, Jesus, you are worth it. And you are who I will die for daily. Let's pray together as we close out. Our Father, we are so, we so want to be overwhelmed by your goodness. The static of our lives often tune out just how good you are to us. The problems, the challenges, the situations, the death, the mourning that is so real and so gnawing for our mind and for our mind's eye. Although they be so strong, your love transcends all things in a category in a different zip code. 
Lord, help us be sensitive to your amazing love. Help us be in awe and captivated by who you are. Help us fight and with an urgency and an excitement to read your word, to pray, to read spiritual books, because we know that we are here to follow Jesus, to not simply do our days, but instead to live like him. God, we love you and we need you so much. Thank you for this time together with the family. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.